Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I am your host, Joey. And it is another fantastic show tonight, folks, because, well, I can't take credit. We have to give all the credit to our fantastic guest. Her name is Kelly Vlahos. She's the executive editor for the American Conservative, where she has written for the last decade. Focusing on national security, foreign policy, civil liberties, and domestic politics. She also has fantastic taste in music, which we'll get to later in the hour. Now, Kelly served for 15 years as the Washington Bureau reporter for FoxNews.com and at WTOP News in Washington from 2013 to 2017 as a writer, digital editor, and social media strategist. She, she's been all over the place, folks. But, Kelly, I have to bring you on now because my favorite little fact about you is you are from the nutmeg state. Yes. <laughs> my old drinking buddies are from the nutmeg really? state. Yeah, they were nutmeggers. <laughs> they were down here in Alabama for a little while, and then they moved up to Arlington, Virginia. So, oh, wow. So, so you, I move, yeah, so I'm in Arlington right now. So we all, I guess, make our way here and there. And <laughs> yeah, if you see any uh, two redheads that are uh, named Sean and Kat, they used to drink <laughs> me under the table being redheads. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, I would say nutmeggers tend to do that, yes. depending on where you're from in Connecticut. But, yeah, that sounds that sounds familiar. Yes, well, I want to begin by folks just getting to know you a little more than just being a, you know, born and raised in the nutmeg state, now living in Virginia. Uh, let's begin, with, when did you first realize, I want to be a journalist, I want to get into politics, and how did that process go down? Well, I, I mean, I, I you know, went, went to college, decided I want to, you know, write for the school newspaper, very interested in, in writing about politics, and at that time it was like campus politics, I also enjoyed music reviews and, you know, cultural, you know, perspectives. And, you know, I just, I just love writing. And I love, I love being in a newsroom. And after college, I went to work for a newspaper, the New Britain Herald in, in New Britain, Connecticut, and did your, you know, your typical beat reporting covering cops and courts and, you know, local government and, you know, Rotary Club and board meetings and, you know, all that stuff to sort of work your way up the ladder. And, really enjoyed that and you know in that evolution you know my politics changed a bit hmm. i mean i i was a, a raging liberal in 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 college in the 90s when you know we had the the first wave of political correctness i don't know if you remember that movie uh, pcu political correctness university oh yeah with jeremy in the Pittman. 90s <laughs> yeah i mean that i mean that was the time i mean I, I think I think it pales in comparison to what's going on, you know, on campus today. I think it's like 2.0 today. But it was a period of time where there were a lot of debates about affirmative action. That was a big thing back then. And, you know, I was fairly liberal, but I really enjoyed getting both sides of the stories. And actually, my favorite professors and my, the professors I keep in touch with today were my conservative professors, the ones that had been sort of backed in the corner by this liberal 
a political correctness. So I always had an open mind and, you know, covering local government, local politics really gives you an eye view into how far government can go to help people. And you see the corruption, you see the waste, you see the abuse alongside all of the well-intentioned people who work for the government. You know, it's not a black or white situation, but it's definitely a nuanced situation. I think good reporters recognize that there is nuance in everything, whether it be politics or the way government works, the bureaucracy, you know, uh, you know, local activism. And so you kind of have to keep a, a skeptical eye. And many journalists don't, and they'll go through their entire career sort of uh, looking at everything through that sort of liberal prism. And I didn't. I made a lot of friends and you know, on both sides of the aisle and listen to their ideas. And by the time I came down to Washington, I was pretty much open and very independent. So I worked for liberal organizations. I worked for conservative organizations, met a lot of people in politics down here, um, but really favored being in the news. And so I ended up eventually at foxnews.com. I was hired by an editor who was very, very much libertarian. It was before 9-11, um, he wanted me to go on the Hill and just sort of, you know, look under the surface of policy stories and things that were going on. They were very much still in the vein of, you know, the Clinton years where government was very not to be trusted. Congress and politicians were not to be trusted. Sure. Um, we hadn't got to that point where 9-11 sort of cemented, you know, the sides. You know, so there, you know, it was more of a like, okay... I was, I, I was just set off to sort of just get the underbelly of things. Um, sort of like what's going on now, you know, studying and, 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 and sort of like writing about the swamp. Right. Um, 9-11 changed a lot of the reporting in this town, particularly on the conservative side, um, because everybody had to take sides. Yes, so a lot of Yeah, so a lot of the writing was about the war, what side are you on, the politics of the war, you know, the policies of the war. Um which is fine, but the American conservative really gave me a venue to write about the war and about the, the policies of the war, specifically the Patriot Act and all of the, the burgeoning national security state, um, the growing government um, largesse surrounding the war, um, the military, defense, contracting, that you know, no, not many of the conservative outlets were willing to tackle at the time because, you know, a, a Republican was, you know, in the White House leading the charge. And um, so, you know, that's, that, 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 that's why I landed and, and stayed with the American conservative, because it was founded in 2002 in opposition to the Iraq War and by Pat Buchanan and other Republicans. Um, paleoconservatives, if you want to call them that, sure. um, which was unheard of in 2002 for conservatives to come out against the war. But we all knew that they, we were there and we were out there, and people who are independent-minded, more libertarian, non-interventionist, but didn't ascribe to, you know, the, the liberal orthodoxy. And it was a really bold move, and it, and it, it paid off because they were right. <laughs> they were right about everything. Yes, and they it, took a lot of slings and arrows at the time from Republicans and conservatives and neoconservatives and the right wing. But, you know, we're still we're still standing and we have our integrity intact. Absolutely. And in many ways, the rise of Donald Trump 
uh, it might have just been rhetorical, we'll get into that in just a second, is based on this sort of a paleoconservative, uh, non-interventionist, at least, rhetoric. Right. Uh, and again, folks, we're talking to Kelly Vallejo. She's the executive editor for the American Conservative. Now, throughout your writing, and to give you some perspective where I'm coming from, I was only 12 years old when 9-11 happened. Wow. I didn't yeah. really become politically conscious until 2007-2008, uh, the first presidential election I voted in in college. And, you know, I've gone through that sort of idealistic phase of this is the most important historic election in history. Oh, my goodness. And I ended up fairly jaded by 2016, telling the audience I'm not going to support Trump. Um, even if Rand Paul ends up the nominee, I'm not going to support him. I'm not going to support anybody. I'm truly an independent here. And, yeah. and so throughout your writing, and I would love your perspective on this from over the last decade plus, there is this mention of, say, National Security, Inc., National Security Incorporated. And though we've gone to hope and change and now drain the swamp and make America great again, in many ways, National Security Incorporated seems intact. Yeah. I mean, and it's not going to go anywhere. What I do mean, you, if, What do you yeah. usually mean when you refer to National Security Incorporated? Well, I mean, after 9-11, uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars have been poured into... Um, Defense, and when I say defense, I mean that huge uh, galaxy of of military uh, intelligence, homeland security, surveillance, law enforcement. You know, you know, national law enforcement. I mean, uh, securing infrastructure. I mean, it it, it is it goes well beyond you know uh, sending troops to another country. It is the entire infrastructure of security. And that's why I call it the security state. Now, in, in, in this day and age, the spirit has been that pouring money into the private sector would somehow save money. So those billions of dollars went far beyond the, the, the federal government and into the private sector. So you had um, numerous defense contractors and subcontractors sprouting up overnight to handle new contracts and all this money pouring in. They don't go away. It's like it's like uh, growing a garden and just like uh, feeding it year after year after year and then, and then expanding it and expanding the footprint. Um, so you have in Washington, you have a situation where all this money has poured in and you've actually had physical infrastructure, whole, um, I, would, I would call them uh, towns and villages and hamlets of, uh, it would, I would, you know, corporate parks hmm. and then developments, housing development to accommodate those corporate parks, um, all, all to service this, this security state. Tens of thousands of security clearances given out um, to people. I mean, you have the Ed Snowdens of the world. I mean, just multiply him by 50,000 of people who are working for the federal government in some capacity. They are not federal workers. They don't go through the the, the same stringent um, protocols, but they get security clearances. They get top dollar. They're working for Uncle Sam, and they have and they have access to your yours and I personal information. They do massive data sweeping. So I mean, this is just a it, it's so far flung that it's almost hard to to capture it for your audience, but. When I say it's not going anywhere, it's it's living in the spirit of the of the federal government, in which 
it becomes a self-sustaining organism. Right. Uh, so that every every day is another justification and why it needs to get that contract renewed. It needs more money, and that and and and, and in that so so basically it has to justify why it's why it's needed, which means keep the fear up, keep people worried, and find find new nails to hammer at, whether it be at home or abroad. And that's scary because we already feel like we're criminals in the eyes of the government because, you know, there are all of these laws had been, uh, powers had been set up through the Patriot Act to, to basically spy on Americans, you know, ferret out terrorists among Americans. Uh, you know, so... <laughs> You just feel like you're under a glass at this point. It, it, it's really not. It, 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 it's here to stay. And you and I had talked earlier about the, you know, the, the uh, reauthorization of one of the spy tools, the, yes. the 702. You know, um, it'll, it'll keep being reauthorized. The Patriot Act. People fought like Rod Paul against it for years, and it got him nowhere. Unfortunately, it is unfortunate, and it's it's really I. See the difficulty there is kind of an unfair question because when you're talking about the national security state, it's so sprawling. There are so many yeah. people that make this thing up. But as you said at the beginning of the show, a lot of folks might be in the national security state and be well-intentioned or it pays the mortgage. It, yeah. it's, it's one of the few businesses, though, where you can create your own demand by lobbying or or instilling fear in the populace. So based on what you just said, I think I know how you're going to answer me here, but lately I've been calling the United States of America an empire. Some people react negatively to that. Some people go, yeah, Joey, you're right. What say you, Kelly? Well, you know, the first thing that I would say is look at Africa. I mean, we have been expanding our our presence, our military footprint in Africa for the last several years. We've created bases for our drones, our drone programs. At first we didn't acknowledge it. Now we do. Um, we're building new bases for drones there. Uh, we're doing tons of training. We're bringing troops over there all the time in places that you and I probably didn't even know existed. Right. Why are we doing that? Now, I mean, this is just one slice of it. But to me, that is empire. It is expanding the footprint, expanding the influence, expanding the military, expanding the, um, the, 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 the governmental um, you know, the influence within other countries to the point where they depend on you. Uh, they depend on you for the money that you're paying them to build the bases there and to have the presence there. That's empire, and that's just Africa. But, I mean, I look at that, and I see that expanding, and I don't see much of it in the paper. I see people like Nick Turst, the great reporter, has been hammering away at that. And every time he calls the military, they try to give him another story about how many troops are there? You know, what's the meaning of base? <laughs> right. Is it a base or is it an outpost? Is it an in installation? Well, that doesn't really count. You know, um, yeah. I mean, so I, I just look at Africa and I look at, I look at our military presence across the globe. And it might not be what you think of as your British Empire template. Um, but it's pretty darn close in terms of of our entrenchment in these places and how much we have forced um, foreign countries and their governments to depend on us. 
Well, and I, I think it's just a fact when you look at, you mentioned Africa, but it sprawls into the Middle East where the guarantor of Europe's security and Eastern Europe, all the way, you know, including, you mentioned Pat Buchanan. Buchanan thinks it's insane that we would, you know, threaten nuclear war against the Russians for parts of Ukraine. And then you can move across Asia and you have issues with North Korea and with the rise of China and avoiding the so-called Thucydides trap. I mean, it's, it is a global endeavor with global obligations. And then you can bring in, you know, the monetary system into this, how much that uh, fuels the world and how much America is controlling the world through financial markets, through sanctions. Uh, it seems like a fact to me. I just, yeah. folks, I would like folks to open up to and understand what the stakes are. Um, that This really is this sprawling uh, machine, this corporation, if you will, that it seems like our elected officials either are in on the game and they kind of realize this is the reality of the situation, I'm going to play the game, or some seem idealistic and then they sit down, say, in the presidential chair, and they start to change their tune. Now, this, right. this happened with Obama with hope and change, and this has happened with Trump. But before we talk about Trump as president, what did you think of Trump and his rhetoric on the campaign trail in regards to foreign policy? Well, I think, you know, of, of all the things that 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 he had, uh, you know, had had talked about, touted, supported on on the campaign trail. I thought his foreign policy was the most reasonable or sound. And I think you know he gave a lot of non non interventionist conservatives heart that he would pull back, you know, uh, from all of these misadventures overseas and and stop you know the sort of expansion. I mean. You know, just to go back for a second, I mean, Mick, Nick Turse, by his latest calculation, we have military in 138 countries right wow. now. That's not all, you know, um, you know, uh, admitted to by the, by the military, of course. But that, just to give your audience just a sense of how how far that 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 uh, footprint is. Um, but yeah, I think Trump made people feel a little heartened about you know, where he would go. I mean, he, you know, especially in comparison with Hillary Clinton, who was, uh, you know, who we would call a, a classic humanitarian interventionist, you know. So she, I mean, she has been very pointed about how she felt regarding Syria and whether or not that she would put troops in Syria. She said she did, she wouldn't put troops in Syria, but she would be engaging in these no-fly zones or, uh, and, you know, uh, putting special forces in here or there. I mean, she's pretty cagey about how what how far she was going to go, but I think most of us were pretty um, convinced if, if Hillary Clinton had gotten there, she would be a much more uh, muscular in her, in her policies in terms of, like, sending troops overseas and getting involved um, more militarily in the Middle East. So I think they, you know, they took, they, you know, they, they, they saw Trump as possibly a, a solve compared to the Obama and the previous Bush administration. Yeah, what has Trump done since he became president? Because I remember, well, after he announced that we're not pulling out of Afghanistan, that you, your mind changes when you sit behind the desk and when you actually get the reports. How would you judge Trump comparing him to his campaign rhetoric as president? Well, I mean, I think that he's fallen into the same sort of um, swampy somnolence that a lot of these politicians do when they come down to Washington. 
um, they get sucked into the establishment uh, line on foreign policy and national security issues. And, you know, his, his top advisors, uh, General Mattis and uh, General McMaster, um, were pretty adamant that we need to stay there. And they, they, they had signaled that very early on, that we needed to stay, and that there were more terrorists there now than there were before, and that the Russians are involved, and the Iranians, and you name it, what bugaboos are involved. And they convinced him that we needed not only to stay, but to put more troops in. And I, I feel like that's, that's very disappointing because it's just more of the same. And I feel like we haven't had a real fresh um, uh, look at, or take or what you call it, strategy in Afghanistan. And I think people were waiting for one and they were waiting for maybe more realist foreign policy to sort of take hold. Maybe some of his advisors might be the people who hadn't gotten a chance to sort of um, flex their ideas in the past. And he seems to be going to the same people, the same establishment uh, thinkers and scholars and think tank types. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tired dance. Put, put a couple thousand more troops in and then hope to, hope to put a Band-Aid on the situation, kick the, the can down the road. And I just don't know how much the American taxpayer can take it when they're telling us that it's, a, it's at least a billion a year to keep those operations going. And meanwhile, you have people in West Virginia who have to go to, like, some medical tent to get, you know, to get their diabetes medicine once a month because they don't have Medicaid, right. you know, or they don't have any access to health care. I just don't know how long people in this country are going to just accept that. We're just going to pour money down this black hole. And so I think that is disappointing. You know, he may not have gone into Syria with guns blazing, but he doesn't seem to have any strategy there either. Um, Iraq, so far, I mean, with you know our special forces and Iraq, and the Iranians and and and, and the, the Kurds and the Iraqis that we've trained have managed to like route ISIS out, and so things seem to be kind of band-aided over there. But who knows what's going to happen next? So. I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't give him glowing marks on on this national security uh, yet. Yes, I and I would agree with you. We'll get into some more specifics here after the break, in particular the Iran deal um, and what's going on with that in the news today. But we have to take a break here, and before we take the break, and coming immediately back from the break, before Iran and more nasty foreign policy stuff, folks, we're going to talk about the album of the day. Now, I do this every show, Kelly. It's something I actually listen to on vinyl, because I've been turned into some hipster or something. Um, <laughs> and I listened to Asia by Steely Dan this morning. I think it was an original pressing. It still sounds fantastic. Oh, my goodness. So, the album of the day is Steely Dan's Asia, and the first track on that album of course black cow coming back we'll continue to talk to kelly vlahos the executive editor for the american conservative you're listening to the joey clark radio hour stay tuned joey clark in the corner of my eye i saw you in rudy's you were very high Cry in disgrace They saw your face 
Joey Clark. Oh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. The album of the day is Asia by Steely Dan. My guest tonight is Kelly Vlaos. She's the executive editor for the American Conservative. And before we get back into politics, Kelly, you wrote one of the best. It's a short write-up, but it's so good and so dense uh, on the passing of Walter Becker. And what is the, when I played this music? What does it mean to you? Why did you? You were, obviously the passion came through on your piece about Becker. Well, I mean, I, I I've been listening to them since I've been ten, I've t- ten years old, and um, so I, I feel like I've grown up with Steely Dan, both Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, and you know, I'm at a stage in my life that you know, music. You know, my appreciation of music has changed over the years. So there's certain groups and, and artists that I really uh, are beloved to me, you know, sort of matched a, a, a time in my life, you know, so I can go back and say, oh, I love Led Zeppelin because of X, you know. Hmm. That was my rebellious, my rebellious years, my freshman year of high school, or, you know, Fleetwood Mac at this time, or, you know, another artist here or there. Steely Dan I've actually grown with, and I, be, I think it's because their music, their lyrics, their sensibility is um, is so complicated and ironic and adult. And I say that because they are storytellers, but they're also very coy, and they're playful, and they write about and they sing about people of all backgrounds and situations, mostly people who are sort of like down and out or funky people or people who have issues, um, just regular Joes, and they're not bleeding their hearts, they're not singing about love or, you know, rebellion or any of those sort of more cliched, you know, tropes that you hear in rock and roll, but... They're almost speaking in riddles half the time. Right. So a song that really appeals to you, say, at age 15, because whether it's the cool jazz or rhythms of the songs um, or the characters in the song, maybe 10, 15 years later, you kind of figure out, oh, that's what he was talking about. Because you've matured enough in your own mind, in your own thinking, <laughs> and you're, you know, to, to understand um, the references all of a sudden, then you piece together other things, and so it's almost like it's almost like a uh, they 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 were smart enough to almost you know build a whole lifetime into yes. their writing. And I think with with Walter Becker, I mean, he was such a wonderful compliment to Donald Fagan, in which um, their 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 writing, like I you know I had you know said in in the piece, was sometimes dark, sometimes funny. You know, he, I, I, I believe that he brought that more wry element um, to the songwriting. Donald Fagan's a slightly more nostalgic and playful and quirky and pulpy. Um, they both were, but I feel like they complimented each other. And he was, he, his, his humor was a little darker. Yes. And I understand that he had a tough childhood. Um, sometimes he sort of was overshadowed by Donald Fagan, who was obviously the lead singer, but also a more charismatic figure on stage. Um, but I, I just feel like this this big gaping hole, because they have been together for some 
40-something years had been touring and making music in that time. And not, it, you know, when they toured, it wasn't like, yeah, they played all the old favorites, but they had music that they'd been making since 2000 yeah. that could stand toe-to-toe with anything they made in 1980, say, because they were constantly creating. They were artists. They were, um, you know, so diligent in the studio. Working for them was like working for scientists. You know, they were creating music, and they were perfectionists, and it really came off like that. You know, it was layered and complicated, and I just feel like, you know, I, I, I listen to them today, and I still listen to all the other, all their albums, the older ones, the newer ones, and I constantly find new things that I'm surprised by. And I don't Absolutely. think you find that with other artists at all. Usually you, you don't burn out. You don't, and forgive me for reading your own words back to me, but folks, this, again, is an incredibly well-written piece. You can find it on the American Conservative. Rest in peace, Walter Becker, excuse me, Walter Becker, the edgy, impish half of Steely Dan. And this one line you wrote, Kelly, is, quote, a canon of irreverent, surprising, sublime, sarcastic, opaque, and always challenging songs that absolutely transcended the self-indulgent counterculture of their time. <laughs> it's fantastic, and in a way, I remember the well, I guess the Everything Must Go album and the Last Mall they almost sound like George Carlin and America's become one big <laughs> shopping mall. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, what I was trying to get at there was, you know, they had grown up in a time in the counterculture. You know, they were in uh, they were in college in 1967, I think their freshman year. So they were right at the heart of the hippie movement. You know, that whole time where you know the heartbeat of counterculture. And so most of the, the rock and roll of that time period was based and steeped in this sort of, like, protest, um, rebellion, I mean, you name it, the, you know, trope. Um, they transcended. They weren't interested in that. They actually weren't interested in just basic rock and roll. They were both jazz musicians at heart. And so they brought that sensibility. And then they didn't write about... You know, all I mean, some of their music, you know, their first album were more straightforward lyrics. But on the most part, they transcended. They, it, it was literary, really. I mean, so you can yes. find, like, almost like Ray Bradbury and, 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 and mystery novels. And, you know, you, you, would, you could tell they read a lot. And so they were bringing those stories from the pages to the, to the music. And so when that whole generational... You know, uh, Summer of Love fizzled out, you know, and everybody grew up. They were still there because they just, like I said, they transcended that. And I, I think that that's what makes their music so exciting because they, they sort of eschewed all of the um, the fashion of the time. Yeah. They did their own thing. They were themselves and... Uh, I love watching the classic albums documentary on Asia, and I think folks can find it for free on YouTube. Um, it's incredible. It's very much a New York boys oh, yeah. out in Los Angeles kind of missing home in some ways. And that first side when I was listening to it last night going to sleep, uh, what is it? Black Cow, Asia, uh -huh. and then Deacon Blues. It's a good, a good few songs to fall asleep to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the best music you'll ever hear on headphones. Like with a good stereo system, yes. I mean you can't. And they and they did that on purpose, and they worked really hard at it. And everybody who's worked in um, session uh, sessions with them in the studio have said, "What taskmasters? They just go, they do the same, they do take after take after take." And I remember somebody had given me a bootleg of uh, like studio sessions, 
and I think it was for the album Katie Lied. Hmm. And I had it, and I put that on a tape, and I've misplaced it over the years, but it was so wonderful to see how that they were at, how they, um, the interplay in the studio. And when they finally got the take they liked, they were like, F, yeah, you know? And it was like, <laughs> wow, you're, you had goosebumps on your arm because you, you knew how excited they were. Like, they had, like, created something in a laboratory, and it's alive, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think they talked about we have to reach perfection and then back off a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> to keep the funkiness, to keep the jazz to it. you got to back off from the perfection. Incredible artist. So, again, folks, check out Kelly's piece at the American Conservative. R.I.P. Walter Becker, the edgy, impish half of Steely Dan. I'm so lucky to have seen them when they were still together yeah. in Tuscaloosa a few years ago. Um, they were incredible. I had this drummer that was playing kind of an old-school underhand style. Uh, it was a, a great show, but we could talk about Steely Dan all night. <laughs> I already know that we're like kindred spirits, especially yeah. in terms of music, Kelly. <laughs> and again, folks, my guest tonight is Kelly Vlahos, the ex executive editor for the American Conservative. Now, in the news this week on foreign policy, Donald Trump has been talking about, and it's essentially been... Uh, <sighs> It's out. He hasn't made the decision yet, but everybody's already saying he's going to decertify the Iranian nuclear agreement. Now, you sort of saw this coming when you were listening to Nikki Haley speak at the American Enterprise Institute, I guess, a month yeah. or two ago. Yeah, it was like she was laying the groundwork. It was very obvious. I mean, first, you know, she's she's at the American Enterprise Institute, which is the the biggest neocon, uh, neoconservative. Uh, foreign policy think tank in town. So you um, take everybody who was in favor or had had actually served as architects of the Iraq war and the surge, and you will find them somehow connected to AEI. So the fact that she chose this uh, think tank and, and, of course, everybody who is anti-Iran, anti-Iran deal are at this think tank. So she comes and she's, she's going to do a one-on-one -on -one uh, with Danielle Pleka, who is one of the biggest neoconservatives, anti-Iran warriors at AI, you know, for a special afternoon, you know, uh, presentation. So mm -hmm. it was already pretty much set up for something. And then she proceeded to give her brief as though she was in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And so she started off by saying, you know, this is why we can't trust Iran. And she took it all the way back from the Iranian Revolution all the way forward. Every crime, perceived crime, suspected crime of the Iranian regime, she brought forward as evidence to why we can't trust them. So even though we have certified this agreement, the IAEA has certified that they are keeping up their end of the nuclear deal, she says we still can't trust them. So therefore, this is enough groundwork for the administration to consider getting out of the deal. So they pull this, you know, sort of fast one on us. So she admits that the the international community has acknowledged that they're that the Iranians have kept up their end of the bargain, but yet brings in all of these other reasons why we need to get out of it. So it was obvious to me and many other people that she was setting up the the, the president's um, arguments that he would at some point bring to Congress. They expect that to happen this week, why he's not going to certify the deal. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the whole thing collapses, but it could. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that the, that Congress has to um, automatically reimpose sanctions, but they could. He's sort of kicking it to them, but also having, he's having his cake and eating it, too. So he, he gets to say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting out of the deal because I didn't think it was a good deal to begin with, but I'm not going to go so far as to blow it all up either. I'll just kick that to Congress like he did with DACA a couple weeks ago. Right, and it, Trump is proving himself to be uh, clever, at least politically. I think more clever than uh, folks want to give him credit for in this regard, having his cake and eating it too. But just to be clear with the audience here, Kelly, that... The IAEA has said that Iran has kept up their end of the bargain. And where Nikki Haley and the president are complaining has to do with things outside of, right. the, of the agreement. So they aren't, Iran is not enriching uranium past certain uh, thresholds. But what Haley and Trump are worried about are uh, a, like the missile tests that Iran continues right. to do. Right. The missile tests aren't part of the agreement, though. So, but what but what, what she has, has argued um, and the, you know, the administration has argued is that that should be part of uh, this broader framework. When, when, when the United Nations, uh, I guess, approved the deal, like they gave their approval to it, right. um, they said, you know, they issued a, a long statement about Iran, you know, being part of this international community and that we would keep an eye on their other activities. But there was no binding uh, measures that would, that said if they don't, if they test any missiles that might have capability, nuclear capability in the future, that that was a deal breaker. And I think, you know, Nikki Haley was playing flat, fast and loose by saying that somehow that this was codified somewhere and it's not um so I, I i do see that as being raised and i've been seeing it all over the press but it's still it's not an official deal breaker anywhere within this agreement that they can't test that missile so they can argue about it like one would argue in court but it's still that's why the iaea has certified because that's not part of it another thing that they have complained about is that that Iran isn't opening up other military areas or installations uh, up to inspectors. Right. And that that somehow is an indication that they're guilty. But they don't have to. Um, unless there is some, I guess, the IAEA feels like they're hiding something. But at, at this point, they have not agreed with the U.S. Um, in their you know, assertions or their requests that this be forced. So that's another debatable issue that has not been resolved. But the fact that they haven't opened up those areas is not automatically admission of guilt or a deal breaker. So they're, they're larding on a lot of things that are um, not, not necessarily consequential at this point. Well, yes, but it, it might muddy the waters. Yes, and it, it seems like they're playing to a certain crowd. And again, folks, if Trump decertifies the deal, which I think he's going to definitely do big league, uh, that 
it doesn't breach the agreement, but if Congress decides to put on sanctions unilaterally, again, it was international sanctions that brought Iran to the table, right. along with France, the United Kingdom, Russia, China, Germany, and the European Union. Um, so if the Congress puts sanctions back on, this does breach the agreement, and there are probably many hawks in Iran that want this. Um, now talk of labeling the Revolutionary Guard, Guard for Iran as a terror network. So Iran has said, we'll label your troops as a terror network, yeah. essentially. So it's almost, it, we're, we're flirting with war again. And you write in your piece you wrote on this, that this is music to the ears of a lot of people who maybe thought they were on the outs when Trump was coming into town. Who likes this idea of breaking up this deal? Well, I would say uh, the neoconservative contingent. Uh, the warmongers. <laughs> yes. I don't mean to be too inflammatory here, but I mean, just look at who was against it from the beginning and take it from there. John Bolton's of the world. You know, um, much of the right wing, um, the pro-war right wing. Um, they never liked this deal. They hate Iran. They're suspicious of Iranian activities throughout the world. They blame Iran um, for much of the, you know, for, for terrorism attacks. Um, throughout the world for what's happening in Yemen right now, um, the meddling in Syria, you know, and, and in Iran, I mean, Iraq, so on and so forth. So they never wanted to deal in the first place. Many of those people wanted to strike Iran with our own, our own military capabilities, which would have been just been a disaster. I think most people, you know, most sound thinking, realist people, thinking people would agree with that. But you know, they they fumed when this agreement was signed in the Obama administration, despite the fact that, you know, diplo diplomatic negotiations have been going on through the Bush administration. And so this wasn't a Obama-only, you know, uh, event. This is something that had been cultivated throughout the Republican, you know, administration before him. And um, it was a big deal. And, you know, I just read a piece in The Atlantic by two people who would hardly be considered doves or even non-interventionists saying, you know, we worked in both administrations. And if the stakes at this point are pretty even keel compared to the stakes when this agreement was passed, you know, there was so much tension between Israel and Iran at the time. And and between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example, right. that striking them would have been a disaster, not and, or allowing them to have the nuclear capabilities and just go on would have been a disaster because that could have created a situation where Saudi Arabia goes and, 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 and gets his own bomb, you know, to counter, or Israel strikes first. You know, it was pretty, you know, war was seemed imminent at the time. So, if anything... Tensions are down. Iran has, has has sort of responded. You know, it's agreed to this, you know, enrichment, you know, um, cap. So who wants to upend all of that? But people out there, including John Bolton and all his followers, want to do just that. Well, and as you just put it, if this deal goes down in dramatic fashion with the United States Congress essentially taking unilateral action... I mean, you still have the Europeans uh, invested with the Iranians. You still yep. have the backing of Russia. 
Um, and it puts us again on, you know, it, some folks say, oh, you're just pushing the window, you know, later, 10 years down the road. But yeah. 10 years is a lot of time as compared <laughs> to you now have this impending fight with the Saudis and the Israelis strangely partnered against right. the Iranians. Well, my my editor, Bob Barry, has a fantastic article up on our website right now at American Conservative. Um he points out, and I haven't really heard this too much, you know, this, this wouldn't be the first time that we've reneged on a deal um, with a so-called bad guy. Mm. Um, you know, there, we had a deal in place with Muammar Gaddafi to curb his nuclear program. We not only broke that deal, but we killed him. Right. <laughs> you know, and we bombed this country and turned it into a hellhole. So I do not, if we renege on this deal... A, what kind of credibility do we even have with any other possible nuclear powers like North Korea? Why the heck would they want to would they want to curb their own nuclear potential when they see how we've dealt with others? We don't keep deals. If we don't we don't keep deals, and we invade people we've made deals with. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's a it's a good article because it kind of puts things in perspective. You know, it might feel good and it might be a win, a short-term win for Trump to get out of the deal, please his his perceived base. I'm not convinced his entire base wants to get out of this deal, but he, he, he gets out of the deal, pushes it to Congress. They have their debate that they want over it. They do whatever. They talk tough. But what is the rest of the world looking at? How does this, what kind of chain reaction does this have with, with North Korea, for example? Right. You know, um... I don't know. It's 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 really hard to say, but it's a lot of these a lot of this domestic politics is 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 having long term bad effects on our foreign policy. And I you know uh, members of Congress you know I don't know if they if they want to have this debate. I'm sure there's mem- the Republicans that there are Republicans like Tom Cotton who do. Yes. But it if I find it. Um unnerving to where I start thinking, is Trump crazy enough to have something ready to go with North Korea? To where he, essentially he decertifies the Iranian deal, and then he takes action in North Korea to show that we mean it. I mean, you know, North Korea is not taking out Iraq. And Iran is a whole other jar of pickles, too, when you're talking military action. And we're really out of time, uh, Kelly, and I appreciate you being on. Again, folks, my guest has been Kelly Vlahos, the executive editor for the American Conservative. And, Kelly, I would love to have you back. This has been, Oh, thank I, you. I'd love to come back. It's been a fantastic hour. <laughs> thank you very much, Joey. Well, th- thank you, and we'll let Deacon Blues take us out tonight. All right. Have a great evening, Kelly. You too. Again, folks, check out Kelly Vlahos and read the American Conservative. They're doing great things over there. Steady, Donald. Steady. Moderation and temperance is a virtue. You brilliant man. (sighs) I say with my tongue in my cheek. Thank you for listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Be sure to join me tomorrow night. Six to seven. Have a good night. Joey Clark.